Hello, everyone. It's January 9th, 2023. This is Jordan Bruno, and you are listening to the Mind Virus Podcast. Welcome. You can find us on the web at mindvirus.show. If you'd like to go there to look at any of our sources or other fun and interesting things that we like to post with the podcast episode on our website, feel free to go there. You can also make comments. You can engage in the generally lively discussion between a few select audience members. Well, I'm broadcasting solo today. I don't know if we'd call this a broadcast. (laughs) I'm podcasting solo today. Uh, Bobby Flood is still out of town, and we'll be back next week. So you've just got me. I declined to line up another guest. I have a lot on my mind. I'm not exactly sure what we're going to talk about today, but I figured I would just weigh in with my opinion on a variety of topics and see how this goes. First of all, last time Bobby was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the year in review. And I felt like there was a major theme to the year 2022. And we didn't really crystallize that as we were discussing it. That year... Uh, That idea is that the year 2022 was a year of light being shed on the situation. I feel like a lot of things came to light in 2022, which we talked about, that at least have uh, given people an opportunity to wake up and change their hearts and minds to understand the reality that they're caught up in a little bit better than they might have prior to 2022. If you remember, right at the end of the year, 2021, you had those big Joe Rogan podcasts with Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough. Tens of millions of people, like 40 to 50 million people, listened to those. RFK Jr. released his book, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, and it was the best-selling book on Amazon and in the country for a long time. Uh, Other things came to light. You may or may not be aware of this, but Alex Jones also released a book in 2022 titled The Great Reset, and that was a significant success, uh, one of the best sellers, and it was widely suppressed. And my point is that a lot of things came to light and became clear to, I I think, that silent majority of people who doesn't want to believe that we're in deep trouble, meaning that the the things that are coming to light demonstrate that the oligarchy really does have effective control of the levers of power, meaning the government, the corporations, our multinational corporations, a lot of the commercial sector, and clearly has control of the media. And uh, clearly, very clearly, control of the political aspects of, uh, especially the national political scene. And I think that that became pretty clear, especially when that red wave 
of Republican uh, candidates winning office didn't exactly materialize as big as everybody thought it would, considering all the obvious reasons why it should have. So I think a lot of the people who were sort of in denial about the voter fraud in 2022 are starting to subconsciously understand that that's most definitely what they're what they're up against. But I think a lot of people are still holding out hope because we did end up with a Republican majority in at least the House, and they're sort of acting like they're going to do something about this situation. But with all of the confusion and drama over the recent uh, speakership election, that's where uh, Rep. Kevin McCarthy from the illustrious communist state of California uh, is the guy who believes he should be in charge of the Republican majority in the Senate, or sorry, in the House and be the Speaker of the House. He put himself forth for, for Speaker. He's been long waiting in the wings. And there were some patriot holdouts or liberty-minded holdouts who didn't want to... There were just enough people in the in the Republican, the small Republican majority that didn't want to... Um, let him gain leadership. And so they held out for a lot of concessions. And, you know, in that process, it's become clear, I think, to a lot of people that, you know, you're not dealing with really Republicans versus Democrats so much as you're dealing with a uniparty. And that term uniparty has just recently become something that's hit new media you know, the legitimate independent media is starting to talk about this uniparty. And that's a big deal because we need to, we need to, you know, call a spade a spade, call a snake a snake. We need to realize what we're really up against. And it's, it's become pretty clear that we're dealing with essentially a uniparty. You've got uh, two different wings of the same bird of prey, so to speak. And there are very few people on either side who are true liberty oriented rational um, statesmen, stateswomen that are really trying to fight for the, the moral rights, the independent, the, the individual rights, the, the rational things in society that, that give people freedom uh, from tyranny, freedom to determine their own destiny and keep the fruits of their labors. There are very few people who are really on that, train, so to speak. And, and we saw a few um, in the last year, a few people on the Democrat side essentially declare their independence. There was a senator from Arizona, I think. I'm not sure what to make of that one. But Tulsi Gabbard, she definitely appears to be a genuine, authentic, freedom-loving person. And then you've got a lot of these, uh, um, what do they call them? The, the Freedom Caucus? Actually, I'm not sure if we'd call that the Freedom Caucus, but they called all these people holdouts. They were unwilling to acquiesce to McCarthy's speakership just because he somehow deserves it. They really threw out the anchor and tried to get a lot of concessions. I don't know if that's going to actually pay dividends for them down the road or if it's going to just get them thrown under the bus quicker. But regardless, there are... Anyway, there were just a few dozen or a couple dozen people in the House that recognize this opportunity to try to assert leverage 
and try and get government back uh, focused on helping the people rather than <laughs> helping the oligarchy. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, hard feelings, almost a fight uh, on the, I don't know if it was almost a fight, but there were fights, you know, back in the day in the 19th century in the Congress. There have been physical altercations going back to the earliest days of, of the American uh, Congress. But uh, anyway, these these folks attempted to get the rules changed to their advantage, which is to essentially to the advantage of the people. And they, they wanted things like being able to have 72 hours to read legislation before it comes to a vote, or uh, which is absurd that some of these bills that they have have thousands of pages and they uh, these omnibus spending bills just have gazillions of things tacked into them. Uh, so all, there's all kinds of theft going on that is hard to stop because the government, when they spend money, they're essentially stealing from us. That's either it's via taxation or inflation, right? They have to, they have to go into deficit, which creates, uh, which devalues our savings. And so that's just common sense that we ought to be able to really, with a fine tooth comb, try to eliminate waste and uh, protect the taxpayer in a rational country. And so, so it's, it's quite absurd to see where the mainstream press, the, the, the old legacy corporate press is at on this stuff and why there's not a lot more independent reporting on how bad the situation is. Of course, I spent a lot of time looking at sites like Zero Hedge and their contributors, uh, Infowars, other small outfits that do their own reporting. And so I definitely see people talking about it. But it's it's uh, somewhat uh, disappointing to see that we don't have uh, a bigger pundits on the side of reality and reason, rationality, etc. But, I mean, you've got guys like Tucker Carlson. It looks like he's trying to do something, but he works for Fox, so I'm sure he's severely limited. A guy like Alex Jones, I've uh, he's just completely been erased from the public discourse as much as possible, and they've sued him into oblivion here, but he's still, he's still ticking at Infowars.com. He's still moving along, trucking, train, chugging along, and I think he's a very astute guy, and that bankruptcy situation was a smart move legally because they they haven't been able to shut him down. And I think that he's going to win on appeal, I hope. We'll see if there's any any justice left in the court system. If you watched those, uh, you can go to InfoWars and search it up, but if you watched any of the excerpts uh, or, or any of the court proceedings at all that he was involved in in Texas, and I, I think it was in Connecticut, well, anyway, if you watched any of that, it just became blatantly obvious that the judge had it in for them for InfoWars for Alex Jones and essentially rigged that whole thing. It was worse than a kangaroo uh, court. There was just really no pretense of of caring about reality. The, the judge told Alex Jones he couldn't testify in his own defense because he would be perjuring himself. And they had already established that he'd lied, so he couldn't even he couldn't even try to defend himself, or she was going to throw him out for contempt. I mean, it was the the most bizarre 
stuff went on in those trials. And uh, anybody that really looked at it, myriads of attorneys that looked at it and commented on it, basically conceded that, admitted that, or corroborated that fact. Uh, Of course, all the, the main, the corporate legacy press, they just promoted the fact that he lost and that he had to pay a lot of money or he's going to have to. But we'll, we'll see how that all shakes out. Anyway, it's surprising to me that we don't have more people out there trying to shed light on the reality when there are so many copious and obvious examples of wrongdoing and corruption. And I read an article just today that I thought was interesting. Um, I'm going to link to it. It was by Bill Rice via the Brownstone Institute. And he asks... Where's the Woodward and Bernstein of the COVID scandals? This is a really interesting article, and I kind of want to base, at least start off my comments based on this, because it helps frame how awful our current situation really is. And that's what I've been thinking a lot about, because, you know, just to tell you a little where I'm headed, I think the the main topic of discussion is going to be war. I really do think we're headed to war, but I also think that we're headed there maybe a little slower than uh, <laughs> nobody wants to get to war quick, but it's almost like we can feel something is happening and it's like, okay, get it over with already. And the longer we delay, the less, the more we want to just bury our heads in the sand and go back to sleep and not worry about it. But I don't. I still think that this is an an inevitability that is coming based on how the Western powers have treated Russia and all the activ the actual events that appear to have occurred. Now, granted, we don't know. We're out in the West, and well, pretty much anywhere in the world, it is hard to get real information on the actual reality because it all comes through intermediaries. So. When you're looking at independent journalists, <laughs> it's it's hard to know who's who, who's real, who's not. I mean, the CIA could be running a whole cadre of independent journalists. We know they're running and have admitted to have run a lot in the mainstream press. And we've talked about that a lot also on this podcast. So anyway, this this article by... Bill Rice, I think, is quite interesting. I'm going to link to it and use it kind of as a a launching pad for some of the other comments here. He says, I'm just going to read some large sections of it. I think it's pretty good. And, and I'm not sure where, you know, if he's, <clears throat> what's he really getting at here? The Brownstone Institute is pretty smart. Um, this, this could have been massively expanded, but the way articles are written for you know, competitive media is that you 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 uh, you can't necessarily. In some cases, they can write really long articles, but they generally keep them to a certain length. Uh, I'm not sure how many words that is, but it's a couple of pages worth if it were typed up on a eight and a half by eleven paper, maybe less. That's generally what you see. Maybe that's because we just all have short attention spans. But here's what he says about. Where's the Woodward and Bernstein of the COVID scandals? He says, I was just a kid, but I'm old enough to remember Watergate. As I grew older, 
I learned more specific details about this historic event. Here's my Watergate takeaway, which I think is the accepted narrative, quote-unquote, he's got quotes around narrative, on this historic event. He says, Watergate was the biggest political scandal of the century. That was the last century, all right? We're in the new century right now. The fallout, or denouement, caused President Nixon to resign from office and sent several, quote, conspirators to prison. It also made Woodward and Bernstein the most famous journalists of all time. Few people had heard of these journalists when they began compiling relevant facts about the original Watergate crime and obligatory cover-up, but this changed over the span of about two years. Based in part on these two journalists doing their jobs, congressional officials decided to also do their jobs, and before you knew it, it was the most sordid story. Oh, most of the sordid story was known to the world. Woodward and Bernstein, who were already minor celebrities, really cashed in with the publication of their best-selling book, All the President's Men, which was adapted into an Academy Award-winning movie starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, two of the biggest stars of our era. After filling their mantles with every journalism prize, the Washington Post scribes parlayed this fame and success into a lifetime of speaking gigs by quote, breaking the Watergate scandal, they also acquired the panache that allowed them to play leading roles in future investigations that resulted in, in even more best-selling books. Today, the names of both journalists are literally in the history books where their journalistic accomplishments will f live forever. Every ambitious journalist who followed wanted to be the next Woodward and Bernstein and break some huge scandal that might elevate them onto a similar professional pedestal. The employer of Woodward and Bernstein, the Washington Post, built most of its reputation on the fact that it was the, the newspaper that did more than any other to expose Watergate. So it pays handsomely, directly and indirectly, with benefits that will last a lifetime, to be the journalists or news organization that breaks, quote, the scandal of the century. Okay, it's kind of long, but this is, this is the, the, uh, the punchline here. He says, which leads to the question, given all of the above, why doesn't any journalist, editor, or publisher want to be the next Woodward and Bernstein when it comes to COVID scandals? I think it's a compelling question, but also the, what, there's a question on my mind, and that is, is anyone still, still taking COVID seriously besides the corporate press? I mean... Are we aren't we all worn out about COVID? It's over. It's like, okay, let's let's not worry about it anymore. Let's just get on with our lives. It's done. And another question is, aren't we kind of to a point where we know that it was a scam? Or at least, you know, 60, 80 percent of the people know it was a scam, but they also know we can't do anything about it. This is a this is a pretty good article. It's kind of compelling in a lot of ways. And again, I think there's a little bit of a read between the lines here. But I mean, he he goes on. He says, "Look, it takes no Woodward and Woodward and Bernstein for the man on the street to realize that the COVID crimes and cover-ups must have involved practically every agency in government by now: NIH, NIAID, CDC, FDA, the Pentagon, the FBI, the CIA, the White House, Homeland Defense, Congress, Justice Department, the courts, judges, governors." He goes on and he talks about private sector conspirators, big pharma, uh, all the people that shut down. I mean, it is it is essentially the story of the 
the century really here. But I think everybody already knows that it was a crime against humanity. Not everybody, but a, a significant portion of the country knows that this was foisted upon us. And uh, he goes on and he says, as it turns out, nobody wants to be the next Woodward and Bernstein. Nobody cares about earning that spot in history. He's, he's, he's saying essentially there's smoke here, so there's, there's huge smoke, so there's got to be a fire. Why doesn't anybody want to expose the real truth? And he says, well, the, the answer to this puzzler seems pretty obvious to me. The watchdog press must be part of the conspiracy. Okay, well, we've talked about that on the show a lot. It's pretty clear that the press is bought and paid for, but his point still stands. I mean, there's a lot of people in the press. There's a lot of people in employed by media. There's a lot of doctors. There's a ton of there's just a ton of possible uh individuals out there that could blow the whistle or that could report on it and i think that's the where we get to the read between the lines on this whole um this whole line of thinking which is probably pretty rhetorical and that is that tons of doctors did blow the whistle tons and they got censored and I, I mean, t when I say tons, thousands of people, how many people signed the Great Barrington Declaration? How many how many doctors out there kept their mouth shut to try to keep their jobs? How many people have started podcasts during COVID uh, or started talking about things during COVID and launched their own uh, inquiries and their own media platforms? I don't know if they've launched platforms, their, their own shows, their own media ventures because COVID woke them up. Uh, there, there are tons of people. But the, the thing that has become clear, I think, is that it doesn't pay to tell the truth. Let me repeat that again. At this point in our history, it doesn't pay to tell the truth. And and here again, I got to I got to ask Bill Rice here. OK, are you really serious? Because. You know, he says he asks rhetorically how the bad guys were able to capture and control approximately 40,000 corporate journalists, he says, mainstream would itself be one heck of a story. But who's going to tell that story? Don't laugh. But I guess it will end up being someone like me. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he goes on to talk about how he doesn't have um, he doesn't have the resources of the, Was of the Washington Post and he doesn't have a partner like Woodward helping him dig stuff up. But but he, he makes this plea. He says, what the heck, if the big leaguers don't want to play, I say put me in, coach. Anyway, if anyone reading this happens to be a potential whistleblower with information that would tell your fellow citizens what really took place with COVID, please contact me via the Substack site. Also, I know this. In 2023, COVID's version of Deep Throat, that was the uh, inside source that gave Woodward and, Woodward and Bernstein the details to keep digging uh, and told them where to look so that they can independently expose the reality of the Watergate break-ins and the cover-up. Uh, he says, 
2023, COVID's version of Deep Throat would be wasting his breath to call anyone at the Washington Post. But every real journalist at Substack would take that call and run with it. But, okay, I think that there have been a lot of whistleblowers. There have been a lot of people that have come out and tried to shed light on the situation. So maybe he's looking for, like, the ultimate smoking gun. Say, like, Hunter Biden's laptop. And we all know what happens when you bring Hunter Biden's laptop to light. The the corporate press is just expert at ignoring or squashing or casting aspersion or what they call FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt all over on any seeming truth or evidence of conspiracy or evidence of corruption that people like Bill Rice or Brownstone or, you know, everybody on Substack, et cetera, has been screaming about Alex Jones, you know, for a long time. They've been, they've been talking about, they, they have whistleblowers, they have evidence, but that is what I'm getting at here is (laughs) we have ample evidence and we have ample whistleblowers. We've got a lot of people, but it's not been enough to, change the public mind or has it been enough and now it's just become clear that we have no leverage the freedom loving liberty oriented you know awakened red-blooded american man or woman or whatever any of the races whatever you want to call i mean don't (laughs) just regular people who want to be free doesn't matter what what they look like it's that american ethos are are we all depressed because we realize there's not very much we can do when you watch things like this uh wrangling for mccarthy to become the speaker of the house it's just it's, it's just depressing because everybody knows that this is a business as usual guy and he's having to give up a lot but he's not he's still part of the uniparty this McCarthy dude, in my opinion, he's from California. <laughs> Did anything good ever come out of California? I don't know. Post, please post your comments on the website and let me know what good came out of California politically. Well, this is kind of depressing because Woodward and Bernstein, I think... Um, this article here, I keep forgetting the guy's name, Bill Rice, his article here is a good jump off point because he's he's saying that arguably Woodward and Bernstein broke the story of the century. But I ask, was it the scandal of the century? No, no, it was not the scandal of the 20th century. The the uh, book Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin, I think, outlines the scandal of the century. It was the early part of the 1900s when the oligarchy really got control of the financial system. They got their money monopoly, and they did it through subterfuge and conspiracy uh, by buying off both sides in the Congress. This this has been going off for a, going on for a long time. We've had just going backwards to the mid-century last last century we've had plenty of scandals but 
and, and, and there was definitely a lot of whistleblowers and there were a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of information that's come out, but the guys that, that told the truth, like Julian Assange, are having to run for their lives. Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, right? Uh, Snowden breaks the NSA surveillance, which is clearly illegal, clearly immoral, demonstrates that the government is more afraid of its own citizens than anybody else. Um, Julian Assange, he, he embarrassed the government with the details of their mishandling of the war in Iraq and all the, all the uh, atrocities there and plenty of other things, the Clinton emails, and he's languishing in solitary confinement for his truth-telling heroic endeavors. You've got, uh, just going back to the great financial crisis, I'll link to this, there was a PBS documentary on uh, Frontline called The Untouchables, and I mentioned this before, John Titus, the YouTuber, well, he's not really a YouTuber, he's a truth-teller, he's uh, an analyst, an attorney, works with Catherine Austin Fitz, a lot, but his his YouTube channel is Best Evidence, and he's done a lot of good work on on his channel. You can go back and watch his videos and get a good education about the pr- the real problem. The root of the problem is that there we are not financially sovereign as the the government of the United States, and it has been clear if it wasn't if it wasn't de facto lack of sovereignty all through the 20th century, it it became cemented in legal reality. With the great financial crisis, it became clear that that was the reality in the financial crisis. And this frontline documentary documents how the reason nobody went to jail in the due to the the f- clear and obvious and compelling evidence of fraud in, in the run up to the 2008 crisis. The reason nobody went to jail is because the Obama Justice Department did not investigate anyone because they were told not to by the banks. So clearly, the sovereigns are the banks. It's the big money, and it's not the people's uh, law enforcement agency, the, the Department of Justice. And we, we know that now. We can see the Department of Justice is persecuting truth-tellers across the land. Um they've been weaponized against us and it's clear that's one of the things the congress is supposedly going to take up but but i ask is it too late is this going to be a dog and pony show a 9-11 commission or a, or a warren commission uh, let's go back to the war in iraq just think of how much money we spent how many young men died how many iraqis and afghanis died how many people died for wmd in iraq or over uh, trying to cleanse Afghanistan of these purported terrorists because they bloodied our nose on 9-11. I have argued extensively on this podcast, and even had a, a friend of mine that's an engineer on that he disagreed, but I would again ask him to go to ae911truth.org and watch the video of World Trade Center 7 collapsing, which looks exactly like a casino controlled demolition it, it crimps in the the building crimps in the middle and it goes straight down every joint in that building had to simultaneously um disintegrate in order for the building to fall like that that's just i think a physical reality now my friend's an engineer he can say whatever he wants he and he has the credentials i don't think buildings collapse like that i think it's pretty obvious that they don't and 
the all the architects and engineers at uh, ae911truth.org are the ones that are out teaching and and uh, trying to raise awareness on that fact. But the this is one of those uh, mental domino chains that that falls on people as they realize if World Trade Center Seven was a controlled demolition, then the building had to have been wired weeks in advance, had to have been wired with explosives weeks in advance. That means somebody knew about it. And they did know about it in advance because the BBC was reporting that the building fell before it actually fell. And, and there's that famous footage of uh, the woman reporting it, and the building is still standing right behind her. She calls it the Solomon Building, which is what it was called. And she says it had fallen, and then it fell a little while later. But, you know, so this this complicit press issue was was an issue well before Bill Rice here has been talking about it in COVID. It's they were complicit during 9-11, too. That's been fairly well documented, I think. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. That (laughs) it's it's a hard thing because you want to try to lay out all the facts. But at some point, most people don't care about the facts. They just care about their job, going to work, you know, living their lives or whatever. And they don't necessarily want to modify the narrative of, of what they understand because I don't know why, but I think, I think nine 11 is an important, uh, an important issue. And I think those architects and engineers at AE nine 11 truth have done a great job demonstrating how like a, a lot of these other conspiracies, like the magic bullet, uh, that killed JFK, how, how they, how outlandish they are. And that if, you know, if that particular point is not true, for example, if building seven is a controlled demolition, if it can't have fallen, you know, symmetrically neatly into its own footprint, uh, then that means a lot. There's a lot of mental dominoes that have to fall if that's truly the case, because that means it was rigged to to be destroyed and that means that it happened in advance and that creates a whole host of other issues that are uncomfortable that people don't want to address but there's there's an example going backwards that was at least as big or bigger than covid that worked for the oligarchy if what i'm saying is true they were able to foist an unreality on the public that resulted in 20 years worth of war which in the end didn't matter to America because those countries turned against us. Maybe we've exploited them. Maybe we've pulled enough opium out of Afghanistan and maybe we've pulled enough oil out of uh, Iraq to to make it worth it in their minds. Clearly it was worth it to Madeleine Albright. She thought the costs uh, of all the children that died were worth it. But if that's the case, you know, where were Wood, Woodward and Bernstein then? Going back even further than 9-11. So you had the, so you had the WMDs in Iraq and the whole 9-11 thing. You've got um, Ruby Ridge and Waco in the 90s, which were smaller events, but the government was able to uh, oppress and injure and kill many people that were involved in these two well there's the waco community in texas and then there was uh, the ruby ridge guys which is just pretty much a family up in uh, idaho but they were able to go after these people with impunity and get away with it and where was the media then there's the going back even further we, we can we can probably look 
well, Iran-Contra is interesting. That may be the closest thing we have to a Woodward and Bernstein, but that was, what, eighty mid-'80s, 86? I think is 86, 87, 88. Because the main concern on the mind of the press at that time was, does it go as high as the vice president's office? And, of course, it probably did go all the way up to George Bush Sr., but it never got there, and a bunch of underlings got sacrificed, a few people sent to jail or, or uh, at least indicted and, and uh, convicted some of those guys. Um, Ollie North was the big, the main personality that got in trouble there. Uh, just looking here at the Wikipedia article on it, it says he was indicted in March of 88 on 16 felony accounts. He was initially convicted of three, and he was sentenced by a U- U.S. district judge in 1989 to a three-year suspended prison term, two years probation, 150000 in fines, 1,200 hours of community service. So he kind of gets off light there, considering everything that went on. Um, he was a lieutenant colonel for the Marines. Anyway, we we had uh, plenty of scandal back then, and where would where were Woodward and Bernstein at the time? I guess looks you know in the case of Woodward and Bernstein, they were able to go <laughs> they were able to go and get uh, get it all the way to the top and get Nixon to resign. And my point about that, I think, is that. The, the plan all along was to to have Nixon resign. The the deep state or the oligarchy or whoever had decided they were done with him, and that's why that was ever allowed to get that kind of momentum, I think. Um, well, before, before uh, Iran-Contra, you had the Gulf of Tonkin episode that nobody really cares about because after a war nobody seems to care but that was the non the the event that didn't happen that they said happened that that got us into Vietnam and prior to that is the big one JFK and where were Woodward and Bernstein back then there there been I mean there's so much about the JFK assassination and what the government says the reality is that it's still talked about it's still the stuff of legend it still raises the hackles of of um right thinking people who when exposed to the the reality of that situation realize that the government has been able to very effectively keep this out of the public mind uh there was another article that i found on this i think was interesting because there was a a recent document dump and the Biden administration published supposedly some more secret files on the JFK thing to put it to rest. And I'll read a little bit from an article here by Kit Knightley from offguardian.org. I will link to this, but it's funny because this, this uh, I don't know if Kit is a man or a woman, but they say, you know, waiting for a government, any government to, quote, release their secret files or release their, quote, secret files is a waste of your time. 
and reading anything they eventually publish is doubly so. If you didn't learn that from the nothing burger that was the 28 pages on 9-11, that was the supposedly the secret end of the 9-11 report, um, or the pathetic exercise in revisionism that made up the Afghanistan papers. You all remember the Afghanistan episode, right? I mean, it's, it's really embarrassing for America. We just turn tail and run and leave all of our military equipment there after 20 years. And now it, it, it was a waste. It's clearly a waste. Anyway, he, sa- he goes on, he says, yes, um, if, if you didn't learn anything from those events, and that's what I'm, I, I'm going all the way back to JFK, right? <laughs> all, all the way back to all these other uh, evidences of corruption where we, we could have learned our, our lesson back then. But he says, if you haven't learned it, you should definitely have learned it today, talking about when the Biden administration just released their promised, quote, secret JFK papers. And so Kit reports that it turns out Oswald acted alone. I know, I was shocked too. (laughs) Further, the release dials back on the very slight anti-Russia messaging of the last year's release. So there were were some other papers released last year, but anyway, he he goes on to say that uh, the new CIA document dump shows that Oswald was too crazy and unstable even for the Russians. So he wasn't even in cahoots with them. And that Jack Ruby wasn't even in cahoots with them, even though there's clear evidence that they they met and knew each other. And so he he goes on and he concludes that these secret files tell us the same ridiculous story as the very unsecret Warren Commission. So yet again, we see just how pointless these long awaited government releases are and how they are only ever used to reinforce the official narrative. It was always going to be that way. I think that Kit here has a point, a very good point. And that's kind of one I wanted to talk about a little bit today in conjunction with all my other thoughts running through my head. Anyway, let me just read the end of this article. It's really good. After all, JFK has been, si- has been dead for six decades. That's more than enough time to redact, edit, censor, and indeed forge documents till they tell the story that you want to tell. Hell, it's possible these files didn't even exist until a couple of days ago. Why on earth should we give the CIA, the FBI, or the National Archives the benefit of the doubt? What a great point. What a great point. Why on earth would we give the CIA, the FBI, or the National Archives the benefit of the doubt, especially in light of the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax that they've, they clearly foisted upon the the Trump administration, whether you like Trump or not. And again, I've told you my opinion on Trump. I'm not sure he's what all the Trump supporters really think he is, but it's clear they, <laughs> that the, it's clear that the intelligence apparatus was working against him from before. From, I mean, it's Watergate on steroids. Where were Edward, where were Woodward and Bernstein when the Democrat campaign, the Hillary Clinton campaign, was doing all this. I mean, that's what Watergate was about. Anyway, why on earth? <laughs> again, let me read that again. It's just hilarious. It's not hilarious. It's really sad. Hell, it's possible these files didn't even exist until a couple of days ago. Why on earth should we give the CIA, the FBI, or the National Archives the benefit of the doubt? Supposing they are sitting on some cache of massively incriminating evidence, are they really liked? 
Are they really likely to release it just because someone asks nicely? And here's the big punchline or the big really revealing point of this whole article. I mean, it's just this last sentence, I think, says it all. Imagine the police walking up to a murder suspect's house, knocking politely, and then asking if he wouldn't mind going inside and fetching all the evidence that he killed his wife. Then we'll quietly wait 60 years for him to do it. Uh, incredibly sharp, Kit. This person ends the article with, the entire process is a farce. And again, that's my point going all the way, you know, kind of walking back through all these scandals that could have had Woodward's and Bernstein's supposedly, but they can't because they were never allowed to get to that point. The evidence indicting the government or indicting the, at least the Warren Commission, indicting the authorities for at least not telling us the whole story and not telling the truth is far more convincing and compelling than everything that, you know, Woodward and Bernstein got. All that Woodward and Bernstein got was they were able to force, it was political, right? They were able to, they were able to pit the Democrats in Congress against the Republicans in Congress. They were able to get the whole, the whole thing moving because it was politically motivated and they were able to chase out Richard Nixon, which I don't know. I, we could go back and look at that episode and say whether we thought it was good or not. I don't, I don't know if it even matters. That's what I'm trying to say is that it only worked to uncover the corruption because the Congress was willing to do something about it and the people were willing to do something about it. And then the press Did they have to report on it? Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they wanted to. But where were they during 9-11? Where were they during Pearl Harbor, you know, or before Pearl Harbor? Nobody nobody cared to ask. I guess in a lot of cases, the, the wool has been pulled over our eyes because... We just didn't know. Like on 9-11, we just didn't know. A lot of people didn't have time to think. Pearl Harbor, you didn't have time to think. The Japanese had attacked, and it was very clear they had attacked, and that worked very much in the benefit of the oligarchy because they wanted a war. And so it's not like Woodward and Bernstein could figure that out. But, you know, 70 years later, other people have figured that out, and it's pretty clear that uh, the Roosevelt administration did antagonize the Japanese and cut them off from their oil supplies and uh, goaded them essentially into attacking us because it was pretty evident that a war was coming. So they just happened to fight for, to strike first. And uh, the Americans, of course, that amped everybody up for war here in America. But the entire process is a farce. You know, it goes all the way back to the ancient times. I believe it was the Greek poet or philosopher Aeschylus that said the first casualty of war is the truth. And a lot of this corruption does lead to war. And I guess that's maybe where I'm headed here. Because, you know, Unfortunately for Mr. Rice, 
<laughs> I just don't think there's any money. The, the, the whistleblowers are out there. The, we've already had this situation happen, and they've gotten away with it. They've definitely gotten away with it. And the, the main victims, the people that pay the price, are the regular people. We pay the price. Uh, regular families, uh, men and women, children, through starvation, hunger, violence, etc. We pay the price, and that has been typical throughout history and through all, in all wars. It's the regular people that pay the price. Well, anyway, 2022 was, I think, a year where light was shed on the situation. And for whatever reason, it appears to me that the public did not go along as um, willingly, as fully with all of the garbage propaganda that we were fed the last few years as the oligarchy and the corporate slash governing interests wanted us to. So we didn't go along as willingly as they wanted us to. We didn't fully fully uh, imbibe the rhetoric. And in fact, to the, their detriment or to their chagrin, there were a lot of uh, lights shed on the situation in 2022. I mean, and, and it's still happening. There's a lot of light being shed on it. Uh, for example, John Stockton, famous point guard for the Utah Jazz, Hall of Famer. He was out, and of course, not too much fanfare, but he, has, he, he was quoted as saying hundreds of athletes had been, had been killed or died due to the COVID jab, to the, to the inoculations, the vaccines that, that are not vaccines, the mRNA shots. And, and then he came on an, another podcast or some other media show and there, he was asked about it and he doubled down on it. And he had a paper with several hundred names on it. He said he was making a list and he said it might be up to a thousand or over a thousand. But don't quote me on that because, you know, these things get out of hand. But he's keeping track and he's become uh, a voice for reality, a voice for the anti-vax or anti at least anti-COVID jab people out there. And we keep seeing, again, the stories of athletes collapsing. There was a, an NFL football player that collapsed just the other day. There was a Old Dominion basketball player that collapsed. There was a Hawaiian, uh, M, a, a young woman, an 18-year-old MMA fighter that died suddenly in tip-top shape. So this stuff is, is sick. It's going on, and... Um, the truth is still coming out. There's still been a lot of light shed on the situation. And I think that is to the chagrin of the, of the establishment. I think they'd prefer to have full control of the narrative, but people are waking up. And so what does that lead to? What is our theme? And, and we're going to, I got to wait for Bobby to really get into 2023 predictions, but I'm just going to say, I think that you're going to hear a lot about Uniparty and that's just one thing I've noticed recently, especially due to this McCarthy uh, speaker thing. But I think that 2023 is going to be a year of chaos. It's going to be very chaotic. And I, and I think that the um, the chaos will continue. So it's not just 2023, but I think it's going to end up in war at some point. Now, just to give you a little window into my mind... In July of uh, 2020, so this is a few months, a couple of months after the COVID thing was foisted upon us, 
as a society, I had written a lengthy paper for just for friends that I passed around and I titled it um, on the coming or overview of the coming disintegration. And I had postulated that all of these things were intentional and coordinated. And this was right after the Black Lives Matter riots that were going on, the Antifa riots in the summer that were being promoted by the media while they were simultaneously promoting lockdown. And so I was trying to make some sense of this, and I put together a long paper for friends just analyzing the situation. And I was postulating that it, there was going to be conflict during the election, that it would be contested. And the reason that this was going on is that the oligarchy intended to split the United States. They intended to create a civil war. That was my worst case scenario theory. So I wanted to make friends aware of it. And I threw that out there, not a prediction, but Hey, look, look at what's going on and look at what the possibilities are. Some of my points in this, and the reason that I'm bringing this up because is because, uh, it's about war and I, and I want to look back on it and talk about some of the, the thought processes because I think it's significant as we try to analyze where we're headed in the future. We should analyze where we're headed in the future. We should try to strategize, at least as families, maybe friends, maybe uh, small groups, to try to set up um, some modicum of safety, some network of safety to help each other out and to try to try to anticipate how to sidestep as much of the... Um, calamity that I think is coming as possible. Uh, Catherine Austin Fitz has made some really good comments about how you need to try to understand the actual reality because you need to manage your risk, whether it's financial or, or personal, you know, societal, whatever. You need to manage your risk based on the actual reality and not based on the perceived reality, the propaganda reality. You need to know about the perceived or propaganda reality so that you can be, you can speak intelligently at cocktail parties and not look like a big pariah, as some of us have found out through experience. <laughs> but if you're going to manage your risk, you need to manage that based on the actual reality. And so she brings that up when the vaccines are brought up, because if you enjoy health and you want to live, you ought to be aware that these vaccines really are killers. They're making people sick. They're not, they're not good for your body, whether you're dead or not, or whether you, whether you know somebody that died or not. It's, not, it's just not good for you. And, they're, and they're, the big point is they're entirely unnecessary. So if you're into risk management, you should probably manage your risk by not getting them. That's what she's talking about. And I think I would echo those comments. Of course, everybody needs to make that decision on their own, but they're clearly hurting people. And uh, there was another article that came out recently that uh, the CDC analyzed the VAERS data, which is a woeful underreporting of vaccine adverse reactions. And they, they claimed uh, that there were actual reactions that it was worse to get the vaccine for a lot of reasons for different age groups. And they, they documented and, and uh, data mined and documented the, these adverse reactions. And they, they released their findings. Um, and juxtapose that against the FDI, F, FDA, who said that they did and found no evidence of adverse reactions in the data. 
So we have two competing government agencies now, one telling us that, yeah, the vaccines were dangerous in certain circumstances, and another that was saying everything's fine. But um, I, I would argue that the CDC, under the, the VAERS data, number one, is under-reporting, under, understating the severity of the adverse reactions and the, and the frequency of them, and that... Uh, the CDC would be probably loath to report the the actual reality. They have a, an agenda to keep the population under control also. Well, anyway, um, let, let me just, I've kind of got off on a tangent here. Let me get back to this paper that I that I put together on the an overview of the coming disintegration. Again, I thought that the because they have uh, if if you don't think that the oligarchy has a plan and i'm not saying they control everything you've got to realize how nuanced this is but if you don't think that they have a plan then this discussion is not for you if you don't think that there are corrupt evil forces out there with agendas uh to control if not large regions states regions nations or if not the world then this isn't for you it's clear to me that that's what's going on. And it's clear to me that they do it first and foremost via economic means. Secondly, through war. Third, here we have a new example through health policy, through governments. And, and we've seen that with their actions in the European Union. They did it through trade agreements and treaties and stuff like that. So everything is to render the population's um leverage their their uh the population's ability to self-determine it's to render that inert and the in the paper i point out that the coronavirus mass hysteria rendered the population helpless and inert it was very difficult to mount any significant defense uh, the me media was beating this drum of how dangerous covid was and so people that were getting out to um protest were widely castigated and they were made pariahs but in certain western states the the state legislatures bless their hearts they did see reason and they were able to sort of muzzle or or tone down their executive branch uh policy people uh the health people the governors in some cases governors were uh, exchanged for other governors through uh, uh elections like in montana the the guy that was in there was was a democrat that was replaced by a republican um largely because of the covid response stuff but in in western and southern states you had florida texas etc there were a lot of places where the control mechanism was not able to take total hold like it had in the east on the east northeast coast and in the east and in the uh on the west in the west in california oregon and washington etc and a lot of other places but the but the mass hysteria did essentially render much of the population inert and um i contrasted that in this paper with the messaging of the lockdown versus the black riots black lives matter riots the antifa riots and pointed out that that was big evidence that there was something afoot. And because um, remember, in the early days of COVID, it was hard to tell what the reality was. And it became clear to some of us that we were 
we were dealing with a scam or, or a, at least a virus that wasn't nearly as dangerous as the establishment wanted to paint it very early on, within a few months. The Bakersfield, the Bakersfield doctors, uh, what were their names? It was Dr. Erickson. He's, he's the one that really came out later and I think, you know, lost a lot of um, mainstream stature because he, he did follow the data where he originally had seen it going from their testing centers there in California. Those guys, when they, when they came out, it became very clear to a lot of us that, that we were being had, that we were being taken advantage of and, and propagandized dramatically. And um, so, so this is uh, mid-2020. This is all coming to fruition. We're starting to see that this is very intentional. And the Black Lives Matter riots were very clearly evidence that uh, people in media had a massive cognitive dissonance, double standard, agenda, hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it. They, they were not reporting accurately on anything as the mostly peaceful protests were going on. We saw, we saw at the same time a great deal of censorship and cancel culture. So there was a, a weaponization of the technology and the, the platforms that people use. People were being canceled and, and um, destroyed for reporting truth. They, they definitely deplatformed a lot of um, role models or rather what I would call the leadership of the resistance. Peop anybody that was speaking out against the, the corporate narrative w was being taken down. And so that's another thing we were seeing. A and it became obvious the fix was in, the obvious that there was coordinated effort to, uh, to try to foist some outcome on the people. They simultaneously destroyed our culture all of entertainment all the circuses shut down you know the the sports the uh television movies etc churches shut down so our culture was simultaneously under attack and we had an economic collapse going on at the same time and and we also saw that uh at the same time our government was destabilizing asia and by extension, Russia, this is what I wrote in my paper, they were antagonizing China at the time. China was, of course, the epicenter of COVID, supposedly. So um, it was a big question whether, whether uh, it was released by somebody or if it leaked from a lab, you know, who funded the Chinese, whatever, who, who's, who's really behind the Communist Party's... Um, Policies is it is it really the the Communist Party or is it the Rockefellers with one of their or the or the oligarchy with their social experiment? We don't know. So anyway, all of this is going on in mid twenty twenty, and I'm thinking, okay, this is quickly headed the wrong direction. Maybe this is the year that they really just light everybody up and destroy the destroy the society and it leads to civil unrest civil war whatever you want to call it fighting in the streets breakdown in services etc i thought that might happen and again the reason i thought that was because of all these combined factors that were going on at the same time the coronavirus the response to coronavirus the riots and the violence the censorship and the cancel culture 
the suspension of our support support structures like entertainment, churches, etc. The economy was collapsing. Uh, we were antagonizing our en- enemies, etc. It looked like this was headed the wrong direction fast. And um, so at the time, I was I was thinking this you know this may go this year, but it turns out that this oligarchy is content to grind things out. I had asked myself and I'd asked my friends, you know, the question is, what's the goal here? Are they trying to install Joe Biden? I thought not. I thought that installing a Biden or a Hillary Clinton would galvanize traditional conservatives against the establishment out of open fear of such a tyranny. But look, that's what we've got. And they've still been successful at keeping things under control. Largely due, I think, to the fallout from January 6th, 2021, when all those people were caught up in a, in a farce, in a, in a great uh, prov- provocation um, there at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. I also was thinking that one of, the, one of their goals, so I, I thought maybe their goal was not to install Joe Biden. I thought they would would welcome a Trump presidency because that'd allow them to foment violence in the streets, and um, that their goal is to break up the United States so that they could establish a supranational monetary system. You know, de de emphasize the Federal Reserve system towards a more global system, and then uh, not really disband, but downgrade the United States military and and try to create some sort of supranational military, which is what NATO is supposed to be, but it's really mostly funded and run by the United States. So uh, to cement a supranational military force, I thought was one of their goals. I, I noted, here's a quote from the paper, if there is a group of people exerting the type of influence that I'm describing, then it would be in their obvious interest to foment change in their favor before the inherently inequitable system their fathers created disintegrates to their advantage. So I, I just got a little more antsy, excited about the time frame, but it's clear that the system is, it's, if it's not clear to you, it should be clear to you now that the system is breaking down. We're having a lot of problems. It's just it, it comes in fits and starts. And the, and the general overall trend since, say, 2008 or 9-11 is, is in a certain direction. And that is not a good direction for Americans or the world, really. So my, uh, my point was that they're going to try to destroy the system before it, it uh, removes their advantages and that they would contest the election. And I couldn't, I just didn't think that they would install somebody like Joe Biden, but they did. <laughs> they, they, though, were wargaming. John Podesta, the Democrats were wargaming. They were role-playing what they would do if Trump were elected. And they, they were talking about, you know, having states like California secede, all kinds of stuff that was crazy. Um, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, but, but listen to this. Uh, here's another quote from my paper that I think is interesting. I said, I believe it's not a stretch to say that 
At this point, no matter who wins the election, fully half of the country will be dissatisfied. In fact, the left has already shown its unwillingness to accept the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Why should the right submit to the left if they win? Well, January 6th. Anyway, concerning, considering the dirty tricks and overt bias in media and government, why would the right even believe that a Biden presidency would be legitimate? I wanted to talk about voter fraud via mail, etc. And, and we saw that all play out. It just didn't result in a Trump win. It resulted in a, a Democrat winning. And <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that I think a lot of what I had written, what I was thinking was really important. It's just that the that uh, apocalyptic collapse or whatever, all the focus on that is, uh, that's the thing that gets all the, the attention. That's the thing that's in the movies. That's what everybody's worried about. And I kind of saw a way that that might come to fruition there at the end of 2020 starting into 2021 but of course that was never in the cards it was very clear they had the elect there was a lot of effort and money policy work uh groundwork put into stealing the election it's pretty clear and that all was set up during 2020 and it just donald trump was never going to win they (laughs) it's just so obvious how they just they literally stopped counting in the middle of the night and then it comes back and, and by, you know, Trump's ahead and then they come back and no, Biden's ahead. Again, it's like that scene from 1984 when they change enemies midstream. I mean, we're literally living in this crazy matrix false reality and it's becoming so obvious. So, you know, I think there were a lot of, again, important ideas that I'd, I'd been thinking about in 2020. And, and my discussions with Bobby, I think, led surrounding this material led I think to the podcast that we're doing right now and I think a lot of people thinking about these things also led to them speaking out and beginning beginning to try to be the Woodwards and Bernsteins of their day trying to talk about it at least trying to find information and uh, spread the word on the stuff that's not palatable in the propaganda media but really does affect us. So, so here we are. We, um, we saw a Biden election. I think that the bad guys have gotten a lot done in the last couple of years. But, you know, it's taking a lot longer for things to play out. It's, it's still moving in the same direction. It's just taking a while. It's a slow grind. And a lot of things make, I think, more sense now. It, it, the nuances are coming more clear. It, the vast complexity and the depth of our societies is more clear. You know, you would have to have a the, the way that they are able to reset things quickly is through war. That's the way to change society the fastest. And I think I've pointed this out before when we were when we were talking about the history of secret combinations. That Norman Dodd interview with G. Edward Griffin on the uh, how he, his secretary had teletyped the minutes of the Carnegie Endowment for World Peace, their early uh, executive meetings, and that they, it was fairly clear that they 
they wanted to get the United States involved in a war, and then World War One happened, and um, the rest is history. But they they asked the question. Number one, is there any way more effective than war to change society dramatically? And then number two, how do we involve the United States in a world war? And so th- this has been very clearly a possible option for the bad guys and has been since time immemorial. That's their go-to thing. And and so did uh, did it become clear that the public wasn't going to go along with the COVID thing early on and so then they switched to a more long-term plan involving war with Russia because I mean that's essentially the next thing on the docket that was what 2021 was the year of censorship right and vaccines and then 2022 is Russia 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 Russia's attacked Ukraine blah 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 And and this all starts with them trying to induce uh Ukraine into NATO which was a red line that could never be crossed for, uh, from the Russian standpoint. So, so we, we've set up a, a house of cards that, or, well, I don't know if that's the best way to put it. We've, we've set up a tinderbox that everybody kind of knows how that, that uh, or a powder keg, everybody knows how it's going to be lit. There's a few ways to light it, and the Western powers appear to be stoking the, that or, or trying to light that fire because uh, all they have to do is not induce Ukraine into NATO and there's no war they could they could follow up uh, and make good on the Minsk agreements and allow the Donbass and Luhansk territories to self-determine and there wouldn't be a war they could stop they could get Ukraine to stop shelling those people and there would wouldn't be a war they could stop selling Ukraine arms and there wouldn't be a war so it's very clear they want to have a war they wanted they want to antagonize Russia for whatever reason but these things are playing out. So so in that paper, civil unrest and, and essentially civil war, the United States tearing itself apart was my main worst case scenario possibility. That was the thing I was asserting was a, as a possibility and tried to establish why I thought we should take it more seriously. But it turns out that, uh, you know, 2022 was a, a better year than 2021. Or 20, 2021 was a better year than 2022, and 2022 was a better year than 2021. We've increasing, uh, incrementally gotten out of these lockdowns. People, uh, some people have felt safe with the vaccines. Other people have been able to skirt the requirements and didn't have to get them. It's it's not as big of an issue anymore. So, uh, at least l- locally, domestically, we kind of escaped all that the big the big thing that crept up on us in the last couple of years was inflation and uh i did address that in my paper i argued that inflation was one of the things that was going to hit us pretty hard if i had taken my own advice i, I would have bought uh everything that was going to go up <laughs> bitcoin okay I, I didn't really think about that but uh inflation really did hit us hard and it's still something that's uh, running rampant, not partially because the government's printed a lot of money, but mostly because they've destroyed the supply chains. They've uh, regulated and destroyed energy um, production and, and suppliers. They cut Russia right out of the mix last year and, and caused a massive energy crisis and, and destabilized world 
energy markets and, and that energy is probably the main component in the ma- the main commodity that affects all other commodities relative to price and it fluctuates dramatically sometimes so uh one of the things in my paper that i was wondering about is were they going to collapse the economy further in 2020 i said i believe it it's been self it has been set to self-destruct sometime prior to the election and um that there were going to be runs on banks I said, I suspect the effect of government stimulus will ultimately produce significant inflationary pressure. If there were a panic in the banking sector, any way similar to the run on toilet paper, we would likely be facing a national bank holiday, a bank shutdown. We'd be unable to transact via the electronic systems temporarily while the authorities set up, sort things out and shore up the system. This type of an event would be the perfect cover for the oligarchy to begin implementing their restructuring of the system. Well, you know, hindsight is 2020, and uh, the year 2020 does provide us a lot of hindsight. And one of the things is uh, that we can, I think, take to the bank is that we're in for a long grind. I think another thing that uh, the hindsight here demonstrates is that there are really no, there is really no possibility for another Woodward and Bernstein type of a situation because. That type of situation is only going to happen when it's allowed to happen, when it doesn't threaten the interests of the oligarchy too much. And, and that's why I laid out all those examples earlier in the episode about other times when a Woodward and Bernstein could have broken a bigger story than Watergate, and they didn't, or it wasn't allowed to happen. But people still know about those stories. We still know about them because people reported on them because there were whistleblowers Freedom of information requests did come out. People have been able to put the pieces together, but a lot of the public doesn't believe it because it never hit Fox News. You know, no, it was the, the the corporate media never told them they could believe that stuff. So it, it's uh, it makes sense that the oligarchy would install a Biden to continue to take heat and further collapse the situation further further their goals and i think they're they're acting the oligarchy is essentially acting like hey look too bad for you guys you know you can't do any, anything about it you might as well just go along with it they clearly already control the, the levers of power in uh the the bureaucratic side of the government in the in the congress they control a lot of the congressmen and senators maybe not everybody you know, and I think they will put on a dog and pony show here investigating the government while behind the scenes not very much is really going to change. They control the levers of power. I think the January 6th episode, 2021 January 6th episode, shows, shows that they are multiple steps ahead of any organized resistance. You know, there's really no organized rebellion possible here. And I'm not advocating for that. Um, again, I think it would be a moral option if it were possible as per the Doctrine and Covenants section 134 where it says that uh, sedition and rebellion are unbecoming people who are thus protected, meaning that their natural, natural rights are actually protected. I don't think our natural rights are being protected very well at all. We have, we have the right, 
you know, we have a moral right to stand up and assert our independence in a lot of ways, but we're just being taxed into oblivion via taxes, fees, uh, inflation, et cetera, and policies, you know, policies just keep getting tighter and tighter, and uh, almost every aspect of our lives is becoming regulated by unelected bureaucrats that supposedly are managed by the elected officials that we can't seem to oust because of stolen elections uh, influenced at all levels, you know, all the way from your county on up to the federal government. But look, in a state like Utah, you're not going to hear much about that because according to the, uh, what do we call them? The uh, lieutenant governor who manages the elections, the elections are safe and secure, safe and secure. Don't worry. Everything is fine. And they have a lot of money at their uh, fingertips to to market that message on the billboards running up and down I-15 and on social media, et cetera, et cetera, and influence the, uh, the oligarchy-run corporate media apparatus to tell us that everything's okay. And, it, you know, if it were, if, if, if the people really were ready to stand up and make some change, they can't organize very well anyway because of the surveillance state and how society is organized. Any real movement towards that would get shut down immediately. I, I worry about Utah because it's so easily controlled by the the main political party here, which I think Bobby identified as the the main church in the state. And people are very hesitant to, you know, think freely to stand up for what they believe to be right when authorities in the church come out and 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 put forth a different um a different uh direction that they should be going or different talking points that they should be talking about you know uh, ev evidence that w that we're brain damaged to that extent uh, would be the um just the total failure of our society to uh, stand up to this gender dysphoria garbage, this idea that men can be women and women can be men if they just say so. And and the fact that we're putting up with all the, the censorship and cancellation of people who have stood up against that. That's it's just evidence that we don't have any real power. And, and, I, and I hope, again, I hope I'm not being too much of a, a black pill uh, dealer today. I know I am. But we, we still need to try to stand up where we can and assert our rights and assert the reality the best we can. You know, so local school boards, local schools, local city councils, et cetera, your local ward, whatever. If you can stand up for truth there, that's good. That's that's be, that's uh, going to be far more effective and have, I think, far more effect than than worrying about the, the state or the national politics, even though we need to have people to do that. It's just those are there's a lot more money thrown at that and um it's pretty clear that that over the last you know ever since since this, since the second world war there's just been a creeping movement where government has become entrenched uh bureaucrats have become entrenched people we just we just don't 
get rid of government agencies. We just keep adding to it and keep adding to their powers and adding employees to them, to their ranks, uh, officers that come forth and harass us in need of our substance. That's pretty much what government does is it self-replicates like a cancer. So it's just the direction things tend to go. And uh, again, we, I think we should keep fighting against it, but we can't be... Um, we can't be in denial, really, about the actual awful situation. And so that's, I think, what I wanted to talk about today. <laughs> and that I hope that's what I've been talking about, is, is to frame this, this situation, I hope, accurately for those of you who listen to the Mind Virus show who are interested in the actual reality. We're in a long grind. We don't have any real leaders out there that are, um, I mean, there's a few in the Congress, in the state houses, et cetera, but w whether you like Donald Trump or not, it's pretty clear that a national, a guy like that is going to be um, essentially used to dis to try to destroy the American ethos. You know, Ron Paul would never be allowed to be at the highest levels of government. He, he, he well, I've talked about this before, how his treatment during the, the elections that he participated in is evidence that uh, Donald Trump was an acceptable option to the oligarchy for certain reasons. And maybe those reasons are play, have played out in the last six years. But, uh, yeah, Ron Paul was just widely ignored, just completely ignored, and then the Republican establishment wouldn't allow him to get uh, any traction in in the uh, conventions. What they they just I think they turned off the lights on him, didn't they? Or was that the Bernie Sanders stuff? I don't know. Can't remember. Well, where does all of this go? If they have had that much control and have had it for so long then it's hard to say there's a lot we could do about it. I mean, mass repentance would help. That would help a lot. I think that would actually fix things. But Watergate should not have been the biggest achievement of the 20th century news organizations. So this, this has been a long problem, and we're now just experiencing the symptoms of having allowed this to go on for so long. So is it fixable? What, what does fixable mean? A lot of people want to go back to the Reagan years, and I don't think we can do that. Things have changed uh, irreversibly. Is it possible that um, there is no apocalyptic scenario that will actually come to fruition? Is it possible we're not going to have another world war? Is, is it possible that that what we're seeing with these mini crises and crises and all these all these wars and rumors of wars all over is the way that the oligarchy intends to rule us that they they're going to keep us busy through theatrics kabuki theater dog and pony show whatever you want to call it but you know and have the house republicans investigate but then then that just turns out to be another warren commissioner a 911 commission where nothing really happens nothing nothing uh, cataclysmic nothing 
moving in the direction of, of rolling back the tyranny, just more status quo, creeping socialism, communi- uh, I'd, I'd call it so- socialism, corporatism, whatever you want to call it, fascism. Just more of the same from the oligarchy where they just continue to control, but they give us these media, news media circuses and crises to chew on, and therefore people just were, are completely divided and conquered. People are divided in their own minds. They're divided um, socially, and we don't have any resources, and therefore we just can't fight back. Is that what's going on, fourth, fifth generation war- warfare? I think so, but the question is, how will these people really be able to get away with it for the next few decades for what will they really if it's a long grind and of of course they've they've changed their messaging from agenda 2020 to agenda 2030 this uh there's a lot of a lot of discussion in the new media the independent media about that about the world economic forum and and the nuances of all that so is that is that just a, a a propaganda marketing type of a thing to keep people distracted while nothing really changes and uh, there's just this slow creeping you know centralization of power and centralization of money while the the rich become richer and the poor become poorer is that is that what's going on uh it's a possibility i do think that based on all of the policy changes the the small unannounced or unheralded legislative uh, changes or accomplishments that that occur, you know, even even here in Utah, it's pretty clear that that noose is tightening. That all, that the re- regulations are becoming tighter and tighter and tighter. We're we do not have the freedoms that our parents had, and that is disheartening. I think we've talked about it before. Where where does a person go? I know some of the listeners out there have suggested that there are groups in Utah or around the Intermountain West that are experimenting with communal or more free societal living, but they're small groups and they're on the fringes. And I would, I would point out that they still are in Utah, in the United States. They're still under the thumb of this oligarchy. There is no real free country that a person could flee to and start a, an idyllic civilization because it's a global problem and you know a lot of the smaller countries are even more corrupt and they tur- it turns out they're just run by puppets of the of the United States government if they're here in in the western hemisphere and then they're uh you know there's really not a lot of good options over in the uh the eastern hemisphere where people could go set up shop all the land has already been uh claimed and uh, there's there aren't any frontiers for us to to flee to, so it, it's kind of disheartening in that sense. So are we just doomed to have to deal with this status quo crisis after crisis, uh, d- continually degrading situation? I don't I don't think so. I do think there is a cataclysm coming. It, but but again you have to ask yourself if if all the cataclysm media 
the catastrophe media, meaning the movies and the talk, the apocalyptic talk, you have to ask yourself if that is just part of the part of the mind control, you know, that, that they put that out there and people are expecting that it's going to get bad. And therefore, they don't have to stand up at their local school board or, or say anything to their neighbors in church because it's all going down anyway. Yeah, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think I think it's getting worse. And it does look to me like the West wants war with Russia. That seems to be pretty obvious. And again, all the caveats apply because, you know, my worst case scenario thoughts have been wrong in the past <laughs> and i and i've always i think i've grown up wondering about this and I, if you've lived in america since uh world war ii you've this cold war mentality that we're always on the brink of war with russia has been ingrained in our psyches in our dna in a lot of ways so so it's possible that um that it could be that this is just part of the control mechanism, the mind control mechanism. But uh, it does appear if the the uh, minimal information we're getting out of Ukraine and out of the, the independent media out there is mostly accurate, it does look like we're headed to a war with Russia. And so... Some of the big questions are, will they attack us? You know, when does it spill over onto our soil? How does it affect Americans? When does it go nuclear? What does that look like? <clears throat> you know, could they send their their troops over here? I, I'd remind you, and I think I brought this up before on the podcast, that for us to go across the oceans, to go to Europe and to Asia, required massive numbers of ships and material. It required the war machines to be churning out armor and and tanks and uh guns and ships for for years for a couple of years in order for us to get all of our people over there and assert the force that we did during world war ii and afterwards <clears throat> and i want to remind you that uh world war ii developed over a couple of years well actually many years uh so i think that's important to realize that, that these things do take time and if we really is it possible that the West would all of a sudden say, look, yeah, you're right, Vladimir. Go ahead, do your thing in the in eastern Ukraine, and we're going to stop um, giving money and weapons to Ukraine. It's possible, but considering the billions and billions of dollars that we've already sent over there, is it probable? I just, I just don't think so. So that's why I'm talking about this today. I think that this, uh, this situation is going to move to a war and that it looks like the dominoes have been pushed over the, or the, the events have been set in motion that will lead to it. And they've just started in 2022 with goading Russia into moving into Eastern Ukraine under the same print pretenses we were in the Balkans in the 90s, in Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, you know, the former Yugoslavia, same pretense that we were in a lot of countries to, to provide them the opportunity to self-determine, remember, making the world safe for democracy, 
So, so Putin, we're the greatest hypocrites if we're not going to let Vladimir Putin do that on his uh, uh, southwestern border there with a country that was formerly part of the Soviet Union. Anyway, seems clear that we're in, we intend to, we're already fighting a proxy war. It seems clear we intend to see this through. But again, things could change at any point in time. Uh, so let me remind you a little bit about the timeline for World War II, because that was the last time we had a world war and we sent people over overseas uh, in those types of numbers to assert force. And, and I don't think it would take as many people to assert force. Uh, I think we've proven that through the, the wars following World War II, that, w- that we've been able to fight conflicts and assert control with less people fairly effectively, but um, but it doesn't result in the type of outcome that World War II resulted in. In World War II, you know, Western Europe clearly became very friendly with United States and, and U.S. interests and have been for the last 70 years. And, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and all the other places we've destabilized, Vietnam, whatever, Korea, that is not the case. They, they uh, I think the Middle East demonstrates that we, uh, we've not had that kind of effect in those areas. The, they're culturally different, and I think they see through the um, our motivations or our, our uh, the rationale that we've set forth. Uh, justifying those wars. Well, anyway, the timeline on uh, World War II, I think, is interesting. You know, you had uh, the 30s, Germany was building up their war machine, and so that's important. It took them a while to build, to rebuild as a country. And they went through that Weimar Republic inflation, etc., and Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany in 33. So, it was five years before they sort of merged with Austria, who, who was a close neighbor, a close cousin. That was 1938. And then in September of 1938, what occurred was what they call the Munich Agreement or the Treaty of Munich. And let me just read to you a little bit about that from Wikipedia. The Munich Agreement was an agreement concluded at Munich in September of 1938 by Germany, the United Kingdom, France, and Italy. And it provided that it essentially gave to Germany the Sudeten German territory of Czechoslovakia. Now, this was um, in contradiction to, or in, despite, of, despite the existence of a 1924 or 25 military pact between France and Czechoslovakia, and so this episode is also known as the Munich Betrayal. And most of Europe celebrated this agreement, which was presented essentially as a way to prevent a major war on the continent. So if you're uh, unfamiliar with what was going on in the late 30s, you had a, a prime minister in England, which in, in American and uh, British uh, war history circles. He's kind of one of the main figures there in the late 30s 
in opposition to Hitler and he's accused of having appeased or failed because his appeasement strategy failed to contain Adolf Hitler. And this Treaty of Munich was one of those things that um, demonstrates that, that that's kind of, that it was a failed strategy and demonstrates how at the time the people weren't, you know, it, do, it doesn't appear that they really wanted the war. Hitler <laughs> was going to take the territory. But, and, and the Western powers, the Western oligarchs, the robber barons, had armed Adolf Hitler. They'd set all this up, but the people didn't, you know, they were, they were reluctant to go to war, which is generally the case. Well, anyway, uh, September 1938 is the Treaty of Munich. And then in March of uh, 39, the next spring, Hitler invades Czechoslovakia. Then in at that same time, right after that, Britain begins to rearm and reassure Poland. But it's way too late because the Germans were well prepared. They were way too prepared for the British, for the Poles, for anybody. They had reinvented warfare. Their blitzkrieg strategy and, and their weapons were just far superior. So uh, that summer... Uh, 1939 was an uneasy summer. The Russians and the Germans signed a non-aggression pact. And in September of, uh, September 1st of 1939, uh, Hitler invaded Poland. Okay. So 1939 was sort of the watershed year. Now, remember, the United States didn't officially enter the war until 1941 in December. So just kind of let that perspective, that uh, context sink in. March of 1939, that's, um, you know, three months into the year, Hitler invades Czechoslovakia, and it's pretty, sh pretty obvious at that point that the game is on in Europe. Well, I guess I had to take it back, because the game really wasn't on until Poland was invaded, in uh, in the fall of that year, it looks like Czechoslovakia was a throwaway state. <laughs> I shouldn't even be laughing about that, but that's what w the way that the British and French uh, sort of treated it, because Britain, France, and Italy, and Germany were the main powers there in Europe at the time. Well, f so you've got 1939, 1940, and 1941. So three three-fourths two years and three-fourths of a year almost three years before it it took japan um bombing pearl harbor and then the germans declared war on the united states the japanese had declared war on the united states and then uh, the americans declared war on both of them a couple of days later so th there was a long, I'm just trying to point out that there was a long period of time that passed. And between March of 1939, you had this ongoing uh, proxy war with the Poles, right? Uh, I guess there wasn't much of a war, but the Brits were sending them arms. There's, there's political wrangling with the Russians and the Germans. Hitler invades Poland. France and Britain declare war on Germany. And uh, the United States is still not involved. And then... Um, Hitler invades Denmark in and Norway in uh, the spring of 1940. 
and this timeline points out that you've got all this blitzkrieg going on in May of 1940. The Dunkirk operation where the Allied powers were chased out, or at least the French and the English, the English were chased out of France. And uh, in June of 1940, France signed an armistice with Germany. They surrendered, essentially. So, and then it wasn't for another year and a half that until the Americans got involved in the war. Now, the big difference here is that you have the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, which is uh, set in opposition to the Russians. And so if any one of those countries is attacked, unless you have another Treaty of Munich where we're going to just throw away some territory, the idea is that the NATO nations are supposed to come to their defense. And I think that they fully intend to fight if any of the NATO nations are attacked by Russia. That's the whole point of the, the, the whole point of that treaty organization. But my, my uh, reason for going through this somewhat lengthy timeline is just to point out that it took time for this to develop. And that's the, the shift if, if, if 2020 provided 2020 vision, if, if looking back in hindsight is 2020, if that year provided us this, this insight, one of my mistakes in thinking was that things were going to move quickly. Now, there, 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 there appears to be a, a significant grind going on, but we must take stock of the fact that we're already in it. We're already well in it. We already have, uh, I don't know if you'd call it appeasement, but I'd call it eight years, 2014 to 2022, so eight years of intrigue and setup and uh, political wrangling leading to this, uh, for some reason, for some reason, excuse me, the, uh, the decision was made to try to bring to, to push NATO, to push Russia to the brink by trying to get um, Ukraine into NATO, or at least <laughs> at least um, ex- trying to get that process going. And of course, part of the treaty language is that you can't you can't join NATO if you're already at war, because that would of course force the member nations to go to war on your behalf doesn't mean we won't go to war it's just that's what's going on anyway let's see uh in june of 1941 so this is before the united states got involved in world war ii hitler attacked russia which was a huge mistake but this whole time this whole time well before he attacked russia the united states was sending sending equipment, material to the the Allied forces, the Russians, the Brits, and especially the since the French were um, surrendered, the, the idea was they were trying to get as much equipment over there as possible to these nations that were in opposition to Hitler. So the the proxy war, if you want to call it that, that or that that rough analog to what's going on in Ukraine was already going on in um, Europe well before the war started. So we see the same pattern happening. See, I'm not, somebody out there is going to accuse me of 
of being pro-Hitler or pro-Germany here. I'm not. I'm trying to show you how the war logistics match up and the timelines match up. Because us regular people, the regular people are the ones that always get the shaft. They're the ones that get their lives destroyed, whose sons get drafted, or possibly the draft might even extend. I read that it might even extend to 45-year-olds in America. It's a possibility. I don't know how that goes. But... And that's a, that ought to be a sobering thought for all of you people out there, because if we get involved in a massive conflict, if they declare war, there could be a draft. The Vietnam War proved that they decided, and the Korean War proved that they didn't even have to have declarations of war to uh, to institute the draft. So it could happen. But there's a there's a ramp up period, right? And that ramp up time appears to be a time where, at least in the last war. And it happened in World War uh, One. Also, we sent troops. Uh, we didn't really send troops, but we sent material and money and all that stuff prior to actually officially entering the war. So, so it's going on. That sort of thing's already going on. And then, once war was declared, war lasted three and two thirds years from 1941 to VE Day, VJ Day, which was in. I think VJ Day was in August of uh, 1945, Victory in Japan Day. Uh, it was earlier in the in the year, in the spring, that uh, May, May 8th, that the Allies took Berlin. But wh- anyway, that that's what's going, that's what went on. That's the last war that we have. Uh, Bobby and I have argued that, sorry, that's the last big war that we have to look look at. Bobby and I have argued or commented that we're already at war. The oligarchy is already at war with the people and that these wars between nation states are to achieve more significant changes in our society to realign more dramatically governments and and national borders and institute different forms of control than we had heretofore thought possible or even plausible or even possible but uh you know what does that look like you think that's a good question if if it looks like we're headed to war what does it really look like and i think that it looks kind of like what we're involved in first a proxy war and then you have your your people going over we already have uh, well we we have plenty of movies about the american airmen that went over to fight the battle of britain you know the air war uh we've we've got a lot of people that went and enlisted and 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 got involved before there was a declaration of war because it was sort of romantic in World War One and World War Two. But then you had the actual call-up, the, the draft, and the actual declaration of war when things got really serious. And so does that look anything like it looks today? Yeah, we have contractors and operators. Uh, intelligence agencies are working with the Ukrainians, and they're involved in counter Russia operations there. We haven't even talked about Asia where uh, the Biden administration was openly antagonizing the Chinese last year. Nancy Pelosi goes over and they, they basically reversed the, their stance on the one China policy, which is they, they started to try to normalize diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And that's really set the Chinese off. So it looks like the steps are being taken to to draw the boundaries and create the the situation but but I don't think that there's the United States might have 
we, we definitely have a far greater military, a far greater navy than any of the other countries in the world, many of them combined. But the, the ships don't exist. The battle, the, the warships, the troop ships, the, all of those ships don't really exist to get the troops and materiel across the, the oceans, either for us to go over there or for them to come over here. Uh, Russia has a mostly defensive military, as our guest last week explained. And the Chinese are trying to assert force, so they have a pretty good defensive military, and they're trying to create a more offensive military. But they still, they still are uh, in that situation where they don't have a massive offensive force right at their disposal. Maybe they're building up to that. There are some people that think that they'll be ready in the next few years to do that. But my question is, with modern weaponry, such as intercontinental ballistic missiles and these um, very excellent aircraft that, that can fly long distances, the, the proximity of Russian bases to America in uh, the north and in the in what is our west, which is uh, near, you know, Siberia, near Alaska, isn't it possible for them to project force over here? And wouldn't they do that? And how quickly would they do that? What would the events look like to do that? Now, a lot of the anxiety people have is that, oh, they're just going to nuke us right off the bat. And I would say it probably won't go down in that order. It'll probably be something kind of like this lead up to World War II where you get a couple of years of stuff like went on in 2022 here. Will will it spread to border states first? I don't know if it can because Belarus is squarely on the side of the, the Russians, but Latvia and Lithuania, they joined NATO very early on, you know, 20 years ago or something. And so there's not a, pla a lot of places where Russia would be able to expand, nor does it look like they really intend to expand. What it looks like is they intend to protect their access to the Black Sea and hence the Mediterranean. Because, I mean, if we're really being honest here, NATO's been the big dog on the block for a long, long time, for decades the Russians, since the 90s, have had to rebuild. And the biggest Russian naval base in the area of the Mediterranean Sea is in the Black Sea. It's in Crimea. And then Odessa was a big port also, but that's really technically Ukraine, at least as we've discussed in the last hundred years. that The country of Ukraine was um, not... <laughs> It hasn't resisted and hasn't really existed until modern times in the form that it exists. And and a lot of its territory is largely due to administrative um, divisions in the Soviet Union. So so the Crimea was a must win for Russia when they saw the pro-Western fomented revolutions, the Maidan revolution in 2014. They had to take that strategically. The problem is that uh, Ukraine uh, was able to cut them off from their water, and uh, you know that, that, that it's just if you if you look at a map, the Crimea, that little peninsula or island, it's almost an island 
that is the Crimea is essentially a sitting duck. It's just right out there in the middle. And that's how Russia gets down to Turkey through the Straits. Um, we call them the Dardanelles, right? I can't remember my geography here. But that's how they get down towards Greece and into the Mediterranean and, and, and engage in trade with their part of the world. Okay? It's their side of the world. That's They have interest over there. They, they want to have trade and intercourse with those with with Eastern Europe and, and Asia Minor and and the Middle East and the Levant area there. So that's, you know, this is your proverbial land war in Asia. Never get involved in a land war in Asia. It, it's it's almost it's just it's really sad. It's kind of depressing. Well, anyway, getting back to the point here, what what's it going to look like? Belarus is already on the Russian side. Latvia and Lithuania, Estonia, they're already in NATO. Um, Finland and Sweden are talking about joining NATO. Norway has been in NATO for a long time. But uh, so there you go. You've got Sw- Sweden and Finland that are that are applying to be in NATO. But Turkey is kind of holding up their application, maybe at the behest of Russia, because strategically Sweden and Finland would be important based on uh, Russia's desires to assert force there in the Baltic Sea and in the north and protect protect their interests. And I think if you look at a, a globe from the uh, from the North Pole, you, it's really qu- quite alarming how small the countries look compared to how they look on Google Maps or if you're looking at it from the equator. Those northern countries aren't quite as big. And they're a lot closer to each other than it looks like on a map if you go over the North Pole, which is why Russia has invested so much in Arctic type of um, operations. So Finland and Sweden could be a problem. If you, if you have incursions into Finland or Sweden or conflict between Russia and Finland and Sweden, that could be part of it. But it just doesn't seem like Russia really is... They, they want to saddle them with the role. They want to saddle Vladimir Putin with this role of the new Hitler. But he's following the George Bush, you know, make the world safe for democracy uh, motif, you know, strategy that that the americans did he, he that's what he why he got into turkey was to help stabilize the region that's why he got into uh crimea and ukraine and so <laughs> i mean he's got a, they've got a pretty good argument that they're not the aggressors here it's the um, the um western powers and their their uh activities in the region that have have been the point of conflict whether you like the West or not, they have been the ones involved in all these conflicts. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them, right? Especially in the Middle East, especially since 9-11, 2001. So, so what does a war really look like? What, what other, what would some other possible events be on the timeline if it was going to turn into a broader war between NATO, between essentially America and Russia and I think it mostly centers on Ukraine and possibly South Korea, North Korea, or more likely Taiwan and China. That for China to go take Taiwan without a reason really looks bad. It really looks bad for China because 
you know, it's not like it's Hong Kong where it's attached to mainland China. It's a, it's a, it's a whole different animal, I think. But, so I'm not sure that that would be the catalyst. But they might. Uh, it, could, it could involve North Korea. But I think it's going to involve some sort of a false flag in Ukraine. I watched the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan, Amazon series, the third um, the third season that they did. And it's it appears to have been written by the CIA or something. It's all about the CIA. But in it, Jack Ryan averts a war with Russia. You know, it's sort of one of those ripped from the headlines type of made for TV type of shows. It looks to me like Amazon is trying to scale back how much money they put into these things because uh, it's there's not as action packed, but it's all about uh, events in Eastern Europe and a, a hardline Russian separate, not separatist, but a hardline Russian secretive secret combination group trying to foment war between Russia and the United States and also simultaneously pull off a coup in Russia, which is something that uh, a lot of commenters have argued is that Vladimir Putin is actually pretty soft. He's he's not nearly as um, dangerous as some of the pro-war elements in his government. And he seems to have been pretty rational about how, how he's gone about things, considering the the people that might be goading him from the other side. So. This is a really interesting thing, but in it, in it, the way that they're going to start the war is that the Russians had a secret program to uh, create a nuclear weapon, a, a small yield in theater, you know, weapon that w- was uh, being transported that gets blown up and therefore there's an accident. It wasn't like they... They shot it off and 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 detonated it. They they created a dirty bomb type of a scenario, and they want they wanted to uh, they made this weapon that was modeled after American technology, so it looks like the Americans made it. And then they put radioactive material in it, and then they blow it up with high explosives and spread the r- radioactivity all over the place. And then they then they show that uh, NATO is in violation of you know its own uh, stated policies. It's moving um, m- moving <laughs> you know nuclear weapons into places that it shouldn't. In this case in the in the movie or the TV series Jack Ryan, that place is the Czech Republic. But the the idea is that they they created the Russians were the ones that created the false flag. Okay, so false flag attacks are really really important to understand in our modern world. That's why I think nine eleven is such a significant thing because for all intents and purposes, to me, it appears like a false flag attack, and that's what the whole narrative uh, is in this Jack Ryan series is a series of of events that are. Su- they are not what they seem. They they appear to the public to be something, and and to the political uh, operatives, the the to the not only the the bureaucrats 
the civil servants, but also, and the intelligence agencies, but also to the politicians. They appear to be something different than they what they really are. And it turns out these are all, well, spoiler alert, fomented. Uh, you find this out fairly soon in, into the series that they're, these are fomented or, or events that are created by some group that's not even part of the, you know, they're not, it's not the Russian government. It's a hardline secret combination inside of the Russian government that's trying to bring people to war and take over the Russian government. So it's, uh, it all hinges on this dirty bomb. And that I think the nuclear, <laughs> that that's the thing is we've, we've said it before. We could have nukes go off here in America, uh, ergo the Jericho series from, you know, 20 years ago. Was it 20 years ago? Yeah, it was almost 20 years ago. Looking it up here on IMDb, it's uh, 2006. That was an interesting series. It was about a Midwestern, I think, uh, Western Kansas town called Jericho uh, during a, a nuclear event, mushroom clouds going off all over America, and nobody knows where they come from or what's going on. And that's what makes that series so interesting is you, they, these small-town people are trying to figure out what in the world is going on. But uh, we would be fully dependent on news media to tell us where the bombs came from and who to hate if it happened. You know, if, if a bomb goes off anywhere in the world, we're nobody's going to be able to know exactly what happened. And so the premise of this Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan thing on uh, Amazon is pretty plausible. It's like, hey, you know, if you could just get a nuclear bomb to go off or, or a dirty bomb to go off, then all bets are off because nobody knows the truth. And and in it, of course, the CIA guys are the good guys, and, and uh, which is the laughable part about it, that somehow now... Because, you see, I think these these action war type of movies appeal more to conservatives and young red-blooded Republican young men that want to go into the into government, fight for the country or whatever. Maybe it appeals now to Democrats because they know they can or, or leftists because they know they can um, promote their whatever their favorite flavor of the day, gender confusion type of <laughs> um, policies they want. But I really do think it's funny that uh, this Jack Ryan stuff is um, it's, you know, so favorable to the CIA because I think a lot of the this target audience believes that those intelligence agencies are being weaponized against us. And so why would they want to join up or why would they even believe anything that they're putting out? Anyway, that's that's partly my point is a nuke could go off and uh, who's going to believe? Well, I mean, we just won't have any information. So in, in an absence or a vacuum of information, people are going to believe it, I think. A lot of people are going to believe what the news media or the government is telling them, especially if it's catastrophic like a, a nuclear attack. Um, and I think that uh, if that gets going, things might move pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's the question is how do they, how do they involve us how do they how do they get uh, Russia to attack first? I think they'd love to have a uh, Russia attack first, or will they be able to goad them into attacking through a false flag attack? That's a big question. 
Now, I'd love to hear your comments on the any listeners out there. If you have any ideas about how they might get this started, throw them up on the website at mindvirus.show and let us know what you think, if you think it's going to happen, if you think I'm just rambling. But it just feels like that's that's where we're headed, and it might take some time to play out, but there's going to be some sort of a, a big a big event which will then precipitate an escalation. Now, I don't think that that first nuclear event or or whatever that false flag attack is, I don't think that that will lead to nuclear war. I think it will lead to a lot of virtue signaling like, oh, we're not going to get involved in a nuclear war and we can't do that. Oh, oh the oh the the uh the horror, these evil people that did this and they'll be blame and there'll be there'll be mobilization of troops and there'll there'll be a lot of conventional interaction and uh probably an escalation that might lead to a declaration of war. I, I wonder if we'll see first Ukraine and Russia fully declare war or, or Russia fully declare war on Ukraine. I I don't know if Ukraine has actually declared war on Russia. I think they have the way they're acting. They're you know running around uh, especially the way Zelensky's acting. He's, he's, uh, I don't know if he's getting this money for free or in these arms for free. I assume that he's just putting his country into massive debt. Uh, I really haven't looked too closely into that, but I, I don't think that he's going to be able to pull that off without, and, and all the other censorship, shutting down of churches, uh, you know, command control of the country the way he has without being on a uh, fully declared war type of a footing which if you think coronavirus was a great opportunity for these bureaucrats to take over wait till wait till you see a war that will be their ultimate opportunity to to assert control and um, you get your local Alfred Lickspittle that takes takes over referencing uh, the Hobbit well it will be interesting to see how this all plays out. Maybe in a year we'll be able to look back and say that I was uh, once again jumping the gun and, and we've moved away from the precipice, away from the possibility of a greater war. I just don't see it happen. And I, my guess is that what we'll see is more of the same, possibly in 2023 here, maybe towards the end of the year, we'll see... Um, the false flag attack event. I think we're going to see the economies of the world. That, that's probably a, a, one thing we haven't discussed is is how the war involves also economic events. And so we're going to see further economic warfare. Maybe there will be a cyber attack. That might be a false flag, one of the false flags. And uh, we could see the banking holiday. I'm going to throw up on... Uh, I, I found a link off of InfoWars to uh, a meeting of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, which if you walk into your bank, you'll see that they're advertising that your bank is insured. And they, um, anyway, some of the discussion in this, it, it wasn't all bad, but some of the discussion was quite alarming because they pointed out that people are dramatically unaware of how underfunded FDIC is and how they couldn't handle a big a huge banking crisis, but only if, you know, they can handle it if a small bank fails or there's a, a limited situation. But if you have a systemic crisis, 
you know, that they're not able to cover it all. And um, if you have a systemic crisis that could shut down, you know, banks overnight, that that's the thing that if there, if there were a, if there were a panic that could create the conditions for the banks to fail because everybody draws their money out at the same time or tries to, which could lead to the banking holiday. So I think that's a real possibility that we could see some sort of a financial run on the banks or pseudo run on the bank, a digital run on the bank, banks, maybe precipitated by some institution failing or a cyber attack or something weird. But it would it would be fomented via social media and um, reporting, and so you you have to watch for for that uh, kind of March twenty twenty type of a panic move that sets everybody off to go buy toilet paper, right? <laughs> but you know, I think I think we could see something like that happen in the run up to the war. I don't I don't know if it would happen. Maybe maybe, maybe there will be some escalation in the conventional war side of it. And then there's some sort of a cyber attack that uh, is blamed on Russia that destabilizes the financial system. Maybe it's just a further recession. I don't know, but that, that could be part of it. I, I wonder if they've worn out their welcome on the bioweapons side of things. I wonder if people will believe it or if they, if they could potentially do a mass casualty type of event, like a real virus that's really dangerous as opposed to uh, one that's on par with the common cold. Um, that's another possible event that could be blamed on Russians or foreign actors, Chinese, whoever. But uh, in any case, you can see there's a lot of things that could uh, be further steps down on the way to that sort of Pearl Harbor type of a, a thing that gets us into full-on war. One thing that's interesting, though, is that the West has voluntarily shut down all of their energy supplies from from Russia. I, I wonder if they felt like Russia was getting too strong or if it really is about climate change and control because they're warring against their own populations or what. But the, it, it, it can only inevitably lead to the uprisings of the population. And again, we got to go back to my previous comments. Well, is it just too late? The population can't do anything really about it because the oligarchy has such good control. I don't know. But that is an, one interesting element of this because Russia can't really hurt anybody by turning off the gas, right? They've already, <laughs> that that uh, card has already been played for them. And it's like we're we're shooting our own selves in our, in the foot. I wonder if all of that is to feign weakness and try to embolden the Russians and the Chinese because they got the energy. They could prosecute the war. Well, I mean, the Americans, we, we've gone and used up a lot of our strategic oil reserve, too. So so maybe right now we're weak. Maybe there's maybe they're going to strike while the iron's hot and try to, I don't know if we can say strike while the iron's hot, but but attack while the time is right, like with some sort of a decapitation strike or a strategic strike to uh, create a situation or to cause, to cause the United States to not be able to exert as much force as possible as they, as they can currently. 
and that and that's one um, aspect of the hypersonic missiles that the Chinese and the Russians have fielded. In that, uh, there's a lot of concern in the military that the Americans would have a hard time because they could destroy our carriers pretty quickly with hypersonic missiles, and we don't have a really good defense against that. So, so our main method of exerting this force around the world is using our carrier groups, and if they are able to take them out with hypersonic missiles, then that ability is taken off the table. Okay, well, I'm two hours and 15 minutes into this, and I probably ought to wrap it up. It's a lot of rambling, a lot of, uh, you know, stream of consciousness, thinking about what what's on my mind relative to this war that I see as pretty much imminent. I, again, we could back out of it, but it just, it just looks to me and feels to me like we're, uh, we're headed in that direction. I'm not making a prediction, but I think the, the more reasonable man at this point in time would want to be prepared for such an eventuality, an eventuality in case it happens rather than be unprepared and to ignore the, the warning signs, in my opinion, would be foolish. So what are some things that a person might consider relative to uh, what I've said to prepare or a small group of people might consider to, to get a little bit more prepared about what's happening? And I'll just run through a few ideas that I have. I'm not going to take a lot more time here. But you know, having some cash on hand, if you have some savings, having some cash on hand at home under the mattress, as they say, or of course, store it in a, in a safe, secret or uh, secure place so that your kids don't get it. <laughs> if, we, if we do get to the civil unrest stage, then you're going to have to worry about things like home invasion, uh, theft, vandals, um, you know, it, it's not pretty, but especially if you live in Utah, it's a, most of Utah, it's a pretty safe place to be. And we just don't have to worry about stuff like that. But, uh, once the cat gets out of the bag and people become emboldened and they become, um, desperate, though, all of those, all that type of violence is on the table. So anyway, right off the bat though, just the, uh, considering current circumstances, the current situation where we still have all of our, uh, most of our societal mechanisms in place, you know, the law enforcement and the, and there's a polite, mostly a polite society, you know, getting, getting some cash on hand, how much, uh, maybe a couple of months worth of expenses for you and your family wouldn't be a bad idea. Now, again, you got to think about that. You got to strategize. You got to think, what are we going to do with this? What, what might we need? You know, if you, if you have a lot of food storage, you might need a lot of, you might not need a lot of cash. If, if there is an event, um, it's probably going to be similar conditions. We've already seen it in our lifetimes. We've, we've seen it across the country, not just Black Friday or hurricane, uh, you know, in the South where they're, where they're expecting a hurricane or whatever, and, and they're preparing for it and they're, they run out of generators and gas. I mean, we've seen the run on the stores. We've seen the shelves empty out. We've seen that happen. So, um, you know, you've got to strategize and think about what might be possible and what you need to do to be prepared to weather the storm. So uh, having cash on hand uh, helps you in a couple of scenarios. The bank run, uh, if you're the only guy that has cash, you'll be able to buy that stuff. 
in some cases, the people might not be selling. They might shut their doors. They might lock them up. They might board up the windows. So the next thing to think about is having food on hand, food and medicine and water. And again, we've talked through this. Self-defense, I'd recommend you go back and listen to last week's episode if you haven't already. Uh, Pepper spray is a no-brainer, but it is not nearly as effective as firearms. And of course, if you have this, this stuff, you need to train with it. You need to try to understand how to use it and practice with it so that you can uh, be prepared to take um, your own defense into your own hands. You need to think through the scenarios, too. You need to be prepared and, and think about the possibility that you might actually have to use a firearm. That's a, a daunting mental exercise. I remember I used to carry concealed a lot more often. Not that I don't, but... Um, I used to do it fairly religiously, and it's interesting because when you have a firearm on your person, and it, and it's, it tends to be uncomfortable, and you tend to think <laughs> pretty much everybody could be a threat and think about what you would do in a situation. At least I did. I, it made me cognizant of where I was and made me focus a lot more on situational awareness when I was... Uh, uh, regularly carrying. Now, Utah is a, a constitutional carry state, so um, you go look up the rules, but y you can carry concealed without a permit now. And so it's something to consider. I, I recommend that you try to be prepared and trained and, and, and especially go out. Taking a concealed carry class is a good idea because what they do is they spend a lot of their time teaching you the rules for use of deadly force, the legal rationale and what what makes it okay to do that because you don't want to be carrying if you don't understand when you're l legally and morally okay you know justified to use lethal force so I, I would do that first before you start carrying a gun around but think about it think about you know if you needed to carry a gun if things if things outside got a little bit more dicey like uh, the rule of law became less effective. The, you know, we, we might call that a without rule of law situation, but you've got all kinds of variations, very uh, l layers or levels of, of possible um, lawless situations. I mean, like you've got <laughs> right now, you've got Detroit, uh, Chicago, Baltimore, some of these <laughs> really violent cities where you could consider them fairly lawless. A lot of people are getting shot weekly you know it makes these school shootings look really minor if you look at how many people get shot um over a weekend in chicago but you know there's that kind of violence within the, but that could spread to a lot of places if um food and water becomes in short supply so anyway but i i would i would consider uh you know Again, the, the legal ramifications first, and then think about what it's like, what would it be like to be carrying in that type of a scenario? Do you have a holster that you like? That's an interesting thing. A lot of people who carry concealed end up with a drawer or a shoebox full of holsters because they realize a lot of them are not very comfortable. You need to think about that. There are uh, all types and sizes and, and configurations uh, and ways to carry this stuff. And some of it involves having to wear a vest or a suit coat. Some of it involves um, 
putting the firearm in a in a bag or a, a purse, you know, but you don't you, you've got to get the right setup because you don't want to put your hand in your purse and then fire off around inadvertently because the trigger was exposed. You need to think that they sell they sell equipment to make this really safe and um, uh, rational, you know, uh, so that you can you can do it without expecting to have a problem. And, you know, if you decide to do that, then you've got a if you've got a gun around or in your car or whatever often, then you need to remember you are responsible for that and you need to be aware of it where it is all the time. And it always needs to be under your control and not someone else's control. So these are all ramifications relative to carrying a firearm. Um, one thing that we did, and this is changing the subject a little bit, but if, if war is imminent uh, and you are, uh, you have strong feelings that you do not want to be drafted into f- to a situation where you're going to have to kill other human beings. You you might want to write up your thoughts into a letter to yourself or to whom it may concern, and have it notarized, so that you can demonstrate to authorities if you ever do get conscripted, pressed into service. You could point out that you are a conscientious conscientious objector and have been prior to you being drafted. Your your sons or daughters, daughters, yes. They, I mean, there's a possibility in the current political climate that your daughters could be drafted, which has never to this point been a possibility. So, you know, that's something to think about is maybe uh, writing a letter or having your if, if talk to your kids about it and if your 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 sons that are teenagers are uh, or in their 20s or whatever are have strong feelings that they don't want to be involved in that side of the war they might need to be able to present evidence that that's the case and so now would be the time to get ahead of that and and write those letters and have them notarized and then put them away in your safe or your uh your your filing cabinet or whatever but you don't you don't get to do that after the war breaks out. You got to do it now, if you want that to stick. And I, I'm not guaranteeing that the authorities would uh, make any special consideration, but at least you have that on your side. And remember, in any given war, there are a lot of um, <laughs> wars are mostly logistics. the The infantry guys are only a part of the war. However, a hell of a lot of them die in battle. And have to keep getting replenished from the back. So, if we got a war coming, another another thing to do would be to start thinking about this and learn about what happens, and, and try to understand what's going on. If you have if you have relatives that participated in World War II or Korea or Vietnam, it's a good time to uh, start looking into their histories. Probably if they were in World War II, they've passed on. But if you know any. You, you may have a Vietnam vet in your family that you could talk to, but uh, or, or anybody that's been in the military. So again, I'm, I'm just kind of going through my stream of consciousness thoughts on where, where you could focus your preparedness thinking if, you know, if you think like me that this is a plausible, possible, maybe even likely outcome in the next couple of years. Um Another thing that's going to happen is that uh, commodities are going to be rationed, right? Maybe goods and services are rationed. But 
you know, I, I like cars a lot. I, I enjoy fast cars, muscle cars, whatever. And, uh, not a big fan of really fuel efficient vehicles, except for the fact that they cost you less. And so you could look at, uh, you know, I think you, you can pretty much count on commodities spiking in price. Gold and silver would spike. Uh, oil would definitely spike. I don't, we're not going to fight this next war with solar panels. It's not going to, I don't think it's going to wait until they have some sort of futuristic military either. I think it's going to go down and then they'll probably, I don't know, I don't know what the whole end game is here. Maybe this whole climate change thing is just a farce to try to um, have the rationale to uh, cut off Russia from some of its biggest customers. It's a possibility. But logistically, fossil fuels are the way the, the military operates, and it's pretty much the only way that they could prosecute and win a war. And so those are going to be in short supply. The energy is going to be in short supply if if we end up in a war in the next 10 or 20 years. And so having a, a vehicle that uses less of it and having a good bicycle, potentially uh, an electric bike might be a good idea because you could, those are more easy to recharge and will get you around your, you know, your close neighborhood, maybe down to the supermarket or something pretty easily. But th- they're also, I think they're probably overpriced. I don't know. I've, I've seen people whipping around on them. They look really fun. Electric scooter, that might be interesting. They still cost five or 600 bucks, if I remember right. Correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, if you've listened this long. I do have a tendency to talk long. I know I'm two and a half hours into this. But that that's something you could consider that might be helpful if we end up in a, a warlike situation. Guaranteed, the inflation that we've had in the last little while will look like child's play if there's a war. And as we pointed out before, if there's a war declared and the government does take command control of the economy and of the society, you're going to see far more significant censorship and you're going to see rationing, right? That's when the central bank will be able to get its going direct accounts fully adopted by the public because they'll be able to ration what you're buying, when you're buying, where you're buying it. And, um, you know, that's, uh, I think that's just inevitable. I don't think it's likely. I think that's what will happen if those, if it comes to that full-on society, we're at war uh, situation. Now, you've got to consider that uh, I don't know that the either, the question is whether either side really would launch nuclear attacks on each other's um, homelands, I think it's probably likely. But they have a lot of strategic nuclear weapons that are for in-theater, you know, smaller, more confined conflicts. And those would probably get used first. So it's probable that that if we do have another war, the the run-up to it, I think, is going to take a while. But the actual playing out of it might be far less than three and three quarters years. It might be that um, within a a six month period or a year long period, we end up with uh, nukes going off in in, uh, 
on the continental landmass of the United States and in the continental landmass of uh, uh, the Russian Federation. So if that happens, then it's a whole different ballgame, right? Be, then you have the Jericho scenario, and then you really do need, your, your supply chains are really going to be massively disrupted, and you will need uh, that all that survival gear, and you're gonna, your biggest your biggest concern will be the roving armies, which will at first be your own military, and then uh, the uh, all your neighbors, everybody that you live near. And so, strategically relocating is a is a really touchy subject. I'm not recommending that you do it, but I think you should start thinking about getting out of Dodge, who you know, where you would go, uh, maybe pre-positioning some equipment and food or having a, a cabin location. Uh, that That's not within reach of everyone, but that's something to consider. If you have family that live in a more rural area, helping them as often as you can and letting them know of your intentions to come stay with them and that you want to get prepared for it, that would be a really good idea. The problem is, once everything goes down, it's going to be hard to get to those locations. And so uh, the location matters a lot, and how you get there matters a lot. It's, a, it's just something to think about. It's a lot to think about. I know it's a lot to think about. All of this is really kind of daunting. But, you know, as they say, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And it, this, is, this is the hardest thing to be planning for and thinking about. Um, because it has never happened to us, but it has happened to our grandparents. Well, at least people whose grandparents lived in Europe. And it did happen, it has happened to other civilizations. We can go back historically and see that every few hundred years, nations fall, boundaries realign. It does happen to say that it won't happen to us is a lot like the Nephites saying, oh, that great city Jerusalem could never be destroyed or the, you know, oh, how could Babylon fall in one hour? I do realize we have a global um, system and that there's there significant uh, factions of the oligarchy that are multinational. And they, like I said earlier, maybe this is just a big dog and pony show and uh, they're just keeping everybody entertained with the apocalyptic theater but the russians are pissed off okay they launched they've launched on their homeland territory they the ukrainians have been really trying to goad um everybody into a broader war uh zelensky's been calling on the west to launch nukes on russia first to show him uh, uh, you know that we're willing to do it and to keep to keep him in check. I mean, the, the rhetoric coming out of Ukraine is really bad and it's just not being talked about in Western media. The, the situation is pretty bad. It, again, it's hard to tell what the reality is, but considering, again, going back to the uh, Woodward and Bernstein article, <laughs> I, I don't want to really uh i i really think this bill rice guy is saying read between the lines but the point is woodward and bernstein they had the story of the century but it wasn't the story of the century there were far bigger scandals that they could have exposed and they didn't happen why would we think we're getting 
the reality? Why would we think we're getting the reality in the um, in the media when for so long we've been getting a false reality from them? And I, and I'll go back to the Kit Knightley uh, off Guardian article here again. I, I just I'll wrap up. There's so much more we could talk about relative to preparedness, but it is a huge black pill. You need to do something. You need to do something. You've got to think about it. I could start, I was thinking maybe I'd tell you about some of my favorite pistols, you know, or <laughs> specific uh, vehicles or whatever, you know, how to, how to build a fallout shelter in your basement. You go, you can go figure all that out. There's a lot of stuff that you can search up on the internet. You can, uh, you can start getting into preparedness in a bigger way and it really won't hurt you too bad. Just be frugal about it and be careful and, and strategic about it. But uh, considering, I mean, let's go back to what Kit Knightley said. Here's what we're dealing with corporate media and the government, all of the agencies, okay? Here's the thing. He says, hell, it's possible these files, getting back to the JFK files, right? The ones that said that Oswald acted alone. <laughs> Remember the whole Oswald thing, of course, is the basis of the term conspiracy theory because there's no way that... JFK was killed with the magic bullet and there's no way that Oswald was acting alone. In fact, it seems like he wasn't even involved in it. Looks like a conspiracy, right? Well, that's just a conspiracy theory. Anyway, it's possible these files didn't even exist until a couple of days ago. Why on earth should we give the CIA, the FBI, or the National Archives the benefit of the doubt? Such a good question, Kit, in light of all the evidence that's come forth. The Twitter files, even. I didn't even mention the Twitter files in the last two and a half hours it's not just the russia collusion stuff that that turned out to be false that the Mueller investigation was a bunch of crap and it the steel dossier was a bunch of crap and all the all the stuff the media was talking about during the donald trump presidency was just bullcrap why on earth should we give the cia the fbi or anybody in government the benefit of the doubt supposing they are sitting on some cache of massively incriminating evidence, are they really likely to release it just because someone asks nicely? Imagine the police walking up to a murder suspect's house, knocking politely and asking if he wouldn't mind going inside and fetching all of the evidence that he killed his wife and then quietly waiting 60 years for him to go get it and bring it out to you. This entire process is a farce. That's what Kit Knightley says to end this article. And I think that we need to recognize that, that the entire propaganda situation we've been dealing with demonstrates that we've been massively lied to. There's a lot of light that, that came out. A lot of reality came out in 2022, and it's still coming out. But chaos and all, all these things are going to come up and try to distract us from, from taking rational action relative to the things we've learned we need to take rational action we need to, to reset our minds we need to realize we've not been lied to just during the coronavirus thing just in the last couple of years but it goes all the way back to jfk it goes all all the way back to the federal reserve it goes all the way back to the british crown the east india company all of that corruption this is always what happens go ask like Aeschylus says the first casualty of war is the truth. And this goes all the way back to when Cain slew his brother Abel. This stuff has been going on from the beginning. 
And we need to wake up to it. We need to wake up and recognize it and stop tolerating it. We need to, again, diplomatically follow the spirit, but you need to oppose this naive um, acceptance of these lies everywhere, where possible, where appropriate. Again, like Catherine Austin Fitz said, you need to understand the actual reality for risk management, and you need to understand that perceived reality for cocktail parties because you can't just go blow all your political capital in one shot. But you'll know when the appropriate times are. You'll know when you have a chance where there's an opening where you can shed light on a situation. You need to, you need to do that because we're in that time where reality matters, especially to the people who are willing to wake up. Hopefully you can discern. Hopefully God will give you that discernment that you can find those kindred spirits and help them and that and they can help you or whatever as we try to navigate this really difficult situation because it is a difficult situation. If we don't accept it as a reality and if we don't act accordingly, then, you know, oh well. You know, the Jews that left Nazi Germany before what 18 before 1938 a lot of them survived right and the ones that didn't get out of Europe that didn't see it coming that didn't I don't know when exactly it was I, I don't have it right on the tip of my tongue but there were there were elements or there were events going on that should have given them the heebie-jeebies right that that should have demonstrated that uh they that they needed to take a certain action and some of them did and some of them didn't and i realize we can't there, there is no free country that we can flee to i mean edward snowden had to flee america to russia as a political refugee because he shed light on the the nsa spying on its own citizens on on the government surveillance i mean that's how bad the situation is and so we need to we need to first acknowledge that this is bad and then we need to try to uh, prep accordingly and uh, identify kindred spirits and be thinking ahead about what might happen. Again, I think it's a slow grind. I think there's time. I don't think you need to take precipitous action, but uh, all of these things matter and will matter to us in the future, I think, especially if this uh, this war situation develops further like I think it will. Again, all this comes with all the regular caveats and disclaimers. And the most significant and important thing I think that you can do individually and uh, as families is to try to deter- try to uh, hear, ask and 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 listen for God's input. We need to expect that he, they will respond to us and sincerely uh, seek their input in our lives and uh, seek their help to discern, seek their help to understand what it is that we need to do uh, in our lives and with our families and, um, and how we should act and operate and um, ask for their help to understand what's going on. Anyway, prayer is wildly underrated. (laughs) All right. 
on that note, I wish you all a good week and a happy new year. Still January, I can say that. And I'm looking forward to Bobby returning. I hope you've enjoyed this. This is the Mind Virus Show, the Mind Virus Podcast. Find us on the web at mindvirus.show. I am Jordan Bruno signing off.